One of the books that I've been reading to prepare for this sermon on animal rights is titled Thoreau's Animals. Our Unitarian forebear, Henry David Thoreau, wrote more than two million words in his journal. Now, that's a lot to wade through, so this book specifically excerpting the parts about animals is quite helpful. The other aspect I find um, that I most appreciate about this book is that it arranges Thoreau's ob observations, not in the usual chronological order, you know, spanning across the years, but rather arranges it by the days of the year. So it's almost like going through just a single year. The end result is this collated journey that takes you through all of Thoreau's musings about animals from all the various months of March in which he journals, then all the noticings um, about animals from all the Aprils, and so on, gathering all the entries from each month um, of the year in turn, ending, interestingly, with February. So some of you may be wondering, why start in March and end in February? Why not the usual calendar January through December? The reason is that Thoreau's own um, direct experience of the world made him clear that in his experience, and I wonder if some of you can relate to this, for him, the year demonstrably begins in March, but not on any one precise date. Rather, around March each year, you see in his journals, uh, they're filled with observations of signs of when this specific year was beginning in his precise locale of Concord, Massachusetts. He was always keen to observe, I wonder when the ice is going to start melting this year. I wonder when the sap is going to start beginning to flow. I wonder when the birds are going to return from the south. There was no way to know the precise day in advance for those or many more signs of spring. So Thoreau was always watching closely on his daily long walks. I'll give you just one example from his journals on one particular March the 10th. Thoreau wrote, you're always surprised by the sight of the very first spring bird or insect. They seem premature. And there's no such evidence of spring as themselves. So they, they literally seem to fetch the year about. It is thus when I hear the first robin or bluebird or looking along the brooks, see the first water bugs, the whirligig beetles out circling. But you think they have come and nature cannot recede. Thoreau wrote those words in March of 1855. Four years later, in 1859, Charles Darwin, another close observer of the natural world, would publish his landmark book on the origin of species. Still today, some critics continue to wrongly reject the science of evolution as offensive. But from the perspective of Thoreau and other proponents of an Earth-centered spirituality, the science of evolution, the understanding of ourselves and all animals as descended from a common ancestor on the great tree of life, that's often been welcomed as good news. We humans may not be special acts of creation, a little lower than the angels. We may merely be a little higher than the apes, but that worldview can be understood as an inspirational reminder that we humans are not separate and special and alone, 
Rather, we are part of the animal kingdom. We are deeply interconnected with the environment, the ecosystems, and the other beings of this planet. I'll share my screen with you to introduce you to Francis DeWall, though some of you may know his work well already. So here's a slide of DeWall and the cover of his latest book. He's one of my favorite guides to this interdependent Darwinian worldview. He's a professor of primate behavior in the Department of Psychology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And in 2007, Time voted him as one of the world's 100 most influential people today. And he has published many paradigm-shifting books. For this morning, I'll primarily be drawing from his latest book, which is wonderful. I recommend it to you, Mama's Last Hug. You see it there on the cover. But he's uh, written a whole array of worthwhile books, some of which some of you may have read over the years. As we enter more fully into election season, some of you may enjoy revisiting his first popular book titled Chimpanzee Politics. It was published in 82, but remains a classic. In DeWall's words, the roots of politics are older than humanity. And I think recent headlines, chimpanzee politics, I don't know, that checks out. Or if part of you is understandably feeling unhopeful about the future of humanity these days, you might find his award-winning book from 1989 helpful. It's titled Peacemaking Among the Primates. This book reminds us that sure, aggression and war are part of our animal natures but so too are peacemaking and reconciliation. If the monkeys can do it, we can do it. Compassion, reconciliation, peacemaking, that too is deeply a part of our animal nature. Relatedly, his book, The Bonobo and the Atheist, is a fascinating exploration of the ancient animal origins of ethics and morality. I also have a forthcoming sermon planned for around this time next year on animal intelligence based on another of DeWall's recently books with the wonderfully provocative title, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Now, there is so much more to say about the study of animals and what it tells us about ourselves as um, human animals, uh, but... Uh, and there's so much groundbreaking research being done today. Uh, so let me start with just a little bit of historical perspective because I think it can be clarifying. If we go back 50 years to the 1970s, um, DeWall's research on reconciliation among animals at that time, it was considered heretical. He was accused regularly of romanticizing animals, of being an you know, anthropomorphism, of projecting humanity onto animals. Uh, animals at that time were understood by most to be in the dominant scientific discourse to be brutes, focused exclusively on survival and reproduction. Well into the 1980s, animal cognition was considered an oxymoron. Going beyond research into animal intelligence to research animal emotions, that was considered career suicide for anyone who didn't already have tenure. And the majority opinion in the scientific community, it really didn't solidly shift regarding the great extent of animal intelligence and emotions until quite a few years into the 21st century, quite recently. Today, however, research into animal emotions and intelligence is burgeoning and DeWall and other early pioneers have been vindicated. But here's one especially ironic wrinkle. Early evidence for animal emotions and intelligence was championed by none other than Charles Darwin himself, 
Although his best known books are on the origin of species and the descent of man, he published a third major book just one year after the descent of man titled The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. It was, I'll uh, show, show you my screen again. It was even the case that that, that book on, that Darwin wrote was originally supposed to be a chapter in The Descent of Man, but he had so much to say about it that it eventually became its own book. So you can see that cover there on the left, the expression of the emotions in man and animals. And then on the right is uh, um, some photos from, some illustrations from Darwin's um, book. Darwin observed what almost any pet owner has observed, that animals, of course, have emotions, and their emotions are reflected in their facial expression, just as with us. So in the top left, it's not a mystery what that dog is feeling, right? That dog is feeling anger, and it's represented in, you know, snarling and bared teeth. That cat on the right, it's not a mystery what that cat is experiencing, it's experiencing the emotion of fear, probably from that dog. Its eyes are wide, its face is flattened, its hair is standing on end, just like us when we're afraid. The bottom left, that dog is feeling some kind of anxiety. It wants something, uh, you can tell in its behavior. Uh, the cat on the bottom right, it's expressing affection, it's expressing the emotion of love, and or it wants something, right? It's kind of wheedling, that's, that's fine. In retrospect, it's, it's all kind of like, duh. Of course, animals are intelligent. Of course, animals have emotions. But due to various factors, including human exceptionalism, denial of our biological kinship with animals, of how close we're related, and frankly, of male bias against emotion, which really matters in a male-dominated scientific community, um, you've gotten this bias against you know, emotions in general, animal emotions specifically, and animals in general. So Darwin's book on animal emotions and the corresponding facial expressions was neglected for almost a century before a growing number of scientists realized its significance anew. Now, if you really want to dive into the details, again, I recommend Mama's Last Hug, DeWall's latest book about animal emotions. There's extensive examples, but due to time constraints, I'm going to limit myself to one example that was recently published in the prestigious journal Science about um, breakthrough discoveries about emotions and facial expressions in mice. Now, similar studies have been done about horses, donkeys, zebras, dogs, other animals. But it's even more impressive to consider the evidence of animal emotions in mice since their facial expressions are harder for many humans to read. Here's how the experiment worked. Scientists started by setting up a camera to be able to photograph changes in the facial expressions of the mice being studied. And what they found was this clear correlation between certain stimuli and the re resulting facial expressions in mice, just as is, of course, the case with humans and other animals. If you look at the colored squares, the darker and redder the square, um, that side of the spectrum represents facial features of higher importance in signaling that particular emotion, and the lighter the square all the way to white are of lesser importance for signaling that particular emotion. So, you know, shockingly, when you shock a mouse's tail, you get a facial expression of pain. If you give a mouse sucrose or sugar, you get a facial expression of pleasure. If you give a mouse lithium chloride, you get malaise. You give them quinine, you get a facial expression of disgust. You scare them. You either get a facial expression of flight as they try to run away or, you know, flight or fright. You get uh, that expression or a fear, a, a freeze fear expression. 
Again, in retrospect, all of this may seem obvious, but there's been so much denial and resistance over the years about animal intelligence and emotions that having solid evidence is really important to change hearts and minds. So crunching all that data from the camera, the scientists mapped and analyzed further, which is visualized on the right-hand side. The upshot is that a trained observer can now view a mouse's facial expression in isolation and tell you with 90% accuracy what event triggered that facial expression. As Darwin pointed us to more than a century and a half ago, we are moving closer and closer to a universal and evolutionarily based definition and understanding of emotions and their neural interpentings across species. If we move from mice all the way up to like chimpanzees, our much closer cousins, our kinship with animals becomes even closer. Chimps, for instance, have the exact same number of mimetic muscles in their faces as we humans have in our faces, and surprisingly few differences. Even more interestingly, just since this is only coming to light like the last few years, this discovery actually precedes Darwin by more than 200 years. Some of you may know Rembrandt's 1641 painting, The Anatomy Lesson, featuring the Dutch anatomist, Dr. Nicholas Tulp. Apologies for this photo for anyone eating breakfast during this <laughs> Zoom service. In addition to a standard gross anatomy lesson, such as the one pictured, um, Dr. Tulp was the first person to dissect an ape cadaver. So almost 400 years ago, Dr. Tulp noticed how closely the body of the ape resembles our human bodies. He said it resembles our bodies so closely in structural details, musculature, organs, and so on. The species look like two drops of water. You can barely tell the difference. Now let me hasten to add that no one is saying that apes or dogs or mice or earthworms have exactly the same range and complexity of emotions and cognition. Uh, as humans, but scientists are showing us that we are all on a connected spectrum. Both emotions and intelligence may be more developed in human beings, but they aren't fundamentally new to our species. And that truth is deeply Darwinian. It is inextricably a part of our evolution from a common ancestor on the tree of life. We humans are part of the animal kingdom and deeply interconnected what our UU seventh principle calls the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. As I move toward my conclusion, I would be remiss if I didn't address the single most common question that I'm asked anytime I speak about animal rights. Whenever I share new findings about how remarkably intelligent other animals are, their capacity to experience emotions and pain, one or more people will inevitably come up to me afterwards and ask, wait, does this mean I have to become a vegetarian or a vegan? Well, I've personally been a vegetarian for more than 20 years at this point. Uh, at the same time, I'm aware that we're more than five decades into the modern animal rights movement, and less than 10% of Americans are vegetarians. So I don't necessarily anticipate any huge vegetarian conversion experiences in the wake of this sermon, but if that happens for you, let me know. And that it actually has happened uh, a handful of times over the years, by the way. 
But there's a whole spectrum of potential responses that include supporting more humanely raised animals to being what's called a flexitarian or a reducitarian, you know, reducing intentionally over time the amount of animal-based um, food you consume. But what's actually even more interesting to me at this point is less individual change, though I'm always grateful and encouraged by that, and more the potential for fourth forthcoming, potentially pretty massive systemic change. Uh, I'll share my screen with you one more time just to say a little more about that um, briefly. I don't, uh, I'm skeptical, for instance, that I don't think we're all going to wake up this fall eating tofurkey for Thanksgiving. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But here's why change, actually, side note, I don't actually think turkey tastes that great. I think that's a separate conversation we could have. <laughs> but uh, here's why, ch why change may be coming over the next few decades nonetheless. Um, a truth that many meat producers know well is that getting meat, dairy, and eggs from animals it is incredibly inefficient. As long as animals are alive, they have to fuel their own bodies, just like we do. And that consumes the overwhelming majority of all the calories that animals are fed. This means on average, for every 10 calories of food that we feed to animals being raised for slaughter, we only get about one calorie of meat in return. And far beyond tofu and veggie burgers of the past, again, nothing wrong with tofu or veggie burgers, uh, you've got companies today such as Beyond Meat producing chicken strips with no actual animals involved that have fooled many people in blind taste tests that are being sold at KFC. Um, furthermore, consider that in 2016, Tyson's Foods, the most well-known U.S. meat company, invested an undisclosed amount for a 5% share in Beyond Meat, and its CEO said publicly, I think plant-based food is the future of meat. Likewise, some of you may have tried the plant-based, animal-free Impossible Burger that's been picked up by Burger King. Now, having been a vegetarian for more than 20 years, I actually personally don't care about substitute meat products. I'm happy eating a plant-based diet, but I know that I think many, we're going to need that if we're actually going to make um, major changes. But the real game changer coming down the pike is likely going to be cultured meat. And when I talk about cultured meat, I mean the same thing that I say when I talk about immigration justice, that the, immigration, the, the immigrants aren't coming for your jobs, the robots are. Like the um, science is coming for your meat and your animal-raised factory farming. Uh, that... Uh, so cultured meat is grown in lab by scientists. It's literally meat from cells taken from animals, but without the factory farm needed at all to raise animals. Star Trek is here, people. Not just in our pockets with our smartphones, but coming soon to our dinner tables. It may seem a little weird at first, but this change could be profound in decreasing animal cruelty and stopping the toxic emissions that factory farms release into the environment. If you're interested in learning more, I recommend the recent book published by the UUA's own Beacon Press titled The End of Factory Farming. Now, I have so much more to say about this, but I hope my overall point is clear. I count this sermon a success if I leave you simply feeling with Thoreau a little more in sync with the seasons of the year and with nature and in feeling along with Darwin and Francis DeWall a little more kinship with the rest of the animal kingdom. I trust that what needs to happen can flow from there. Along these lines, I'll leave you with an outline of a developmental ethic from the Buddhist teacher Larry Yang related to our relationship with all sentient beings. 
in this season of your life, what might it be like to set this intention for your living? To say, in this moment, may I be loving, open, and aware. And if I cannot be loving, open, and aware in this moment, may I be kind. And if I cannot be kind, may I be non-judgmental. And if I cannot be non-judgmental, may I not cause harm. And if I cannot not cause harm, may I cause the least harm possible. In that spirit of aspiring toward less harm, more love, and compassionate kinship with all of life, let's sing together, Wake Now My Senses.